you believe it's the summer already? How do we get here? Okay. Yeah. And it's Advent season. And before we know it, it will be Christmas. Time just seems to be flying, but you're not. And Advent, it's, it's closely tied to Christmas. Often it acts as a build-up for Christmas morning. And yet, with that being the case, some, sometimes I think we miss the true meaning behind the season of Advent. Christmas is not all that Advent is about. There's more to it. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about this this morning in our Sunday school. What, what is Advent? And why do we have this four-week stretch that leads us into Christmas Day? Well, Advent means coming. It, it is this time of year when, when the church anticipates the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so what we do during the Advent season is, is we take a look backwards towards that first Advent, to that babe lying in a manger. But then we also look forward as well, forward to Christ's second coming, to the second Advent, the time when Jesus will reveal himself in his full glory to the nations, when he will consummate his kingdom, making all things right, So it's a look backwards as well as it's a, it's a peering forward, a peering ahead. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of preparation. And it's a time of anticipation. And that's why I, I chose this hymn to, to go through O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It is one of the greatest and oldest Advent hymns that we've sung in the church. It's a hymn that has aided us for generations and generations in preparing our hearts. And so what we're going to do this Advent season, we're going to look at this Advent hymn and, and look at the scriptures that are behind the verses. Now, what we know as O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it was actually taken from the O Antiphons of centuries past. Their, their exact origins not really known to us, but there are references to them as early as the 6th century AD. And so this is old, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, now, I said the word antiphon, and you may be asking yourself, Pastor, <coughs> what is an antiphon? That's a good question. Thanks for asking. I, I, I wanted to get into the definition of that. So, um, Basically, an antiphon, it, it was a short poetic prose that, that was either sung or recited, sometimes right before, sometimes right after a psalm was read in the church. And in these particular antiphons, the ones that make up our hymn, there, there were seven of them. Seven short Latin phrases 
sung at the end of the Vespers or, or evening services during the Advent season. The first would be sung on December 17th, and the last on December 23rd, each one kind of giving the theme for that Advent day. And the goal of these antiphons was to instill this, this anticipation amongst God's people for the coming of the Lord. Like I said before, that's what Advent means. It, it means coming. Bottom line, the, these short songs, they were written to express the church's desire for their Savior. You see, what, what these antiphons were proclaiming were the different names of Jesus that we find throughout Scripture. These these were titles that were given to the Messiah, to, to the one who was to bring salvation to God's people, the one whom God's people longed to see. I mean, listen to these seven names and see if you recognize any of them. Wisdom from on high. Lord of might. Branch of Jesse's tree. Key of David. Dayspring, Desire of Nations, and finally, the last one, Emmanuel. And each one building off the previous, following this path of salvation history that is laid forth in Scripture, finally coming to that crescendo in Emmanuel, God with us. It's beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely. Today we will be looking at the, the first two names in our antiphon, this wisdom from on high and our Lord of might, the, the, the two verses that, that we just sung today. And it's, it's in these two verses that, that we discover that it is Jesus who ordered all things and governs all things. He is this wisdom from above, and, and he is this mighty rule giver. That's what we see in these verses. So let's, let's dive in and, and see what we can learn. First, wisdom from on high. And, and so the verse we just sung goes as follows. O come thou wisdom from on high, who ordered all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show, and cause us in her ways to go. Now, the original antiphon went like this. O wisdom coming forth from the mouth of the Most High, reaching from one end to the other, mightily and sweetly ordering all things, come and teach us the way of prudence. So what, so what we see in these hymns is that, is that Jesus is this wisdom from above, that not only does, does he create order, in his creation, but he also instructs God's people as well. And this is shown perfectly in our first scripture reading. Turn, turn with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 8. We're going to read the whole thing. Proverbs, chapter 8, says this. Does not wisdom call... 
Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honors are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of the righteous, in the paths of justice granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there was, were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with his fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was, I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, Watching beside my doors, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Here in these verses, we see wisdom personified. And not only personified, but but being chosen from eternity, before creation. Listen to verse 23 again. It, it, It says, ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. 
And so what the author is telling us is, is that wisdom was the architect that God used mapping out the foundations of the universe. And this makes sense, does it not? And we don't live in a creation that is full of chaos. We live in a creation that has order, that has structure. There are laws and, and rules that govern how things work. And the deeper we go down the road of true science, what we are discovering is that there is a sound logic behind everything. It doesn't matter if it's physics or biology or astronomy. There is a, a wisdom that governs them all. And this should be no surprise to us, for that's what the Bible describes. That, that's what this, this proverb describes our God is a God of order not a God of chaos it was by the means of wisdom that everything was made look again at verses 27 through 31 when he established the heavens <clears throat> I was there when he drew a circle on the face of the deep when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Wisdom was there from the beginning, from before creation. And wisdom continues to be in creation. Wisdom sees all things, knows all things, and holds all things together. And, and did you notice what, what is the delight of wisdom? The crown jewel of God's creation, the children of man. Brothers and sisters, wisdom delights in you. Jesus delights in you. Perhaps you are here today and, and you're having a go of it. Life has been difficult. You're not, you're not sure that you're going to be able to make it through. You're feeling depressed. You're feeling upset. You're just downright sad. Maybe it's something you did, something that you're ashamed of. Perhaps you're, you're bearing this heavy, heavy burden of the guilt of your sin. Or maybe it was something that was done to you. The sin of others that have hurt you so severely. And now you're not sure if you can go on. Or perhaps it's something else. Maybe some kind of sickness, some type of disease or an injury, either to yourself or to someone whom you love very deeply. And you're left asking the question, why? Whatever the case, it, it, it's got, it has you feeling about this big. And so you're wondering to yourself, do I even matter? Would, he, would anyone, anyone even care if I wasn't around? 
if I didn't exist. If this is you this Advent season, then know this. Even in the darkest of times, even in the midst of the storm, even if the whole world has rejected you, you are a delight in the eyes of Jesus Christ. You are valuable to him. And that's because in his wisdom, he formed you and he shaped you in his own image. He created you for his delight. You're not a mistake. You're not some kind of cosmic gaffe. Rather, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. In Christ's wisdom, he created you. And yes, that is wisdom. For Jesus is the definition of wisdom. Look look at John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so here we see Jesus being described as the Word of God. In the Greek, this word is logos. And its meaning, it, it conveys, more, conveys more than just a spoken word. It, it, it's where we get our modern English word of logic. And so logos is an ordered way of thinking. It, it is the wise instruction that, that doesn't fight against the ordered nature of things. Instead, it works with God's structure, cooperating with the way that that things have been prearranged. And so what John is expressing here to us is that Jesus is this wisdom from on high, this, this one who was there in the beginning, who created all things. And this wisdom has taken upon flesh. And the reason he has done so is that he might shine a light into the darkness. That he might bring this same wisdom to you. Look at at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus not only is the wisdom that ordered all things, but because he delights in you, he has become that path of knowledge, teaching you in the ways you should go. It is through wisdom that the mysteries of this life find their answers. Those those questions that everybody asks. Why am I here? What is the meaning to life? Is there something greater than what I can see? It's only through Christ, through the word of God, through this logos, that this wisdom from on high, only through him that all these pieces come together. And once those questions have been answered, well then, understanding the paths in your own life, 
the paths that you should be taking suddenly become a lot clearer. In other words, Jesus imparts wisdom to you. Proverbs 8, verses 32 through 36 says this, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. And so it is through Christ that, that wisdom comes to us. Jesus commands us to listen to him. For only he can grant true wisdom. And only in him will you find a knowledge that leads to life. And so this first verse in our song, O come, thou wisdom from on high, who ordered all things far and nigh, to us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to go. This is a, a prayer to God to aid us in our weaknesses and to grant us the wisdom of Christ Jesus. But how do we discover such wisdom? That's where our second verse comes into play. For our second verse in our song answers that question for us. O come, O come, our Lord of might, who to your tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times gave holy law and cloud and majesty and awe. The second verse comes from the second antiphon, which goes as follows. O Adonai, the leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law of Sinai, come and redeem us with an outstretched arm. And so these hymns, they, they reference the account of Moses and God speaking to, both to him and to the people of Israel from that holy mountain, from Mount Sinai. For it was there that, that Yahweh demonstrated his might. And that is why our second scripture reading comes to us from the book of Exodus. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. 
you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And so we see the the people of Israel coming to the foot of the mountain and, and the voice of Yahweh, this Lord of might, resounding before them. And what did he speak to them? He had given to them his holy law, his his Ten Commandments. He had showed them a a way to live that was full of wisdom. It is through God's holy commands that life is obtained. And there are four ways that the the law brings about such wisdom. Four ways that I want to highlight for you today. But, But in order for us to understand these ways we really need to take a closer look at the people's reaction to all that was happening around them. Look, look again at the end of this passage. Look at, look at verses 18 and 19 once more. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Yahweh had come before his people. This Lord of might had descended upon the mountain. But in order to hide his glory, lest the people die, He had veiled himself in a thick smoke, in a cloud enveloped on Mount Sinai. And it was from this cloud that both lightning and thunder came. Bright flashes followed by the the mighty booms that would shake the earth. And as if that wasn't enough, from within the smoke, the trumpets of the heavenly host resounded with a piercing clarity. And yet, it was the voice of the Lord that the people feared the most. For not only did God's speech resonate, 
But he spoke the very words that left them helpless and in utter ruin. In Christ's wisdom, he gave his people his Ten Commandments, his holy law, a law that would reveal to them their true need. You see, even though they, they had just been freed from their shackles in Egypt, only now did they begin to fully understand who their true oppressor was. It took the perfect law of God to demonstrate to them that they were still in bondage, bondage to their sinful desires. And this, this, my friends, left them trembling before their Lord of might. And this is the first way that God's law brings about wisdom. For, for God's law demonstrates to us who we truly are. That we are a sinful, sinful people. A, a people who, who cannot fulfill God's standards. And this is why the people asked Moses to speak to God for them. They, they, they could not bear to be in God's presence. Not after they had full knowledge of their own hearts. Not after they knew of their own sinfulness. We see the same thing happening today, do we not? People running away from the word of the Lord because the voice of God's law still thunders from Mount Sinai, is still revealing to us our sinful nature, that we are a corrupt, corrupt people, a, a people who are in bondage to our sins. And there are only two responses that can be made. Either, either in your pride you will ignore God's word to your own detriment, or God's law will humble you, forcing you to acknowledge who you truly are, a sinner in need of rescue. But not only did God's law reveal to them that they were slaves to, the, to their sins, not only did it show them that they were an unclean people, but this law of God revealed something else as well. For it demonstrated to them who their God truly is. That he is a holy God. One who is without blemish. Listen, the, the law is nothing more than an expression of the character of God. Every command, every thou shalt, every thou shalt not, it gives to us a glimpse into the heart of who God is. And it is in Christ that we see the embodiment of that law. But what is the essence of God's law? Look at Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. Jesus gives us an answer to that question. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, 
This is the first and the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I mean, do you see it? The, the, the fulfillment of God's law is love. It is a love for God, and it is a love for those who are created in God's image. That is the essence of God's law. But this leads us to a question. If, if, if the law reveals the character of who God is, then what does this say about, about him? Well, it tells us that he is the very expression of love. This is why the Apostle John could rightly say in his letter that God is love. And so when we look to the law, what is revealed to us is that our Lord of might governs his creation by his love. In our society today, we have taken upon a stunted definition when it comes to the word love, have we not? We, we believe that true love is demonstrated by making another person happy. That when you truly love someone, you will allow the, them to follow their heart's desire, which is, let's be honest, to find pleasure in their life. And yet when we come to the law of God, why do we bristle at God's commands? If they're all about love. That's because his commands go against what make, makes us happy, right? You see, that's not what true love is. True love is not about our happiness. It is about our joy. And there's a difference. You see, happiness is fleeting. It's here one minute and gone the next. But joy is lasting. It is something that never, ever leaves. And often it comes to us in surprising, surprising ways. It's like when you're given a gift that you did not know that you wanted, and yet once you receive it, you wonder how you ever lived without it. That's what God's law does. It brings about joy. And that's because it is a demonstration of God's love. And this is the third way that God's law produces wisdom in us. It reveals God's love towards us, which then in turn produces joy within us. Who wants joy in their life? Sometimes joy comes in hard ways, difficult paths, but it's joy nonetheless. But there's another fruit that comes about from God's love as well, and that is that God's love, what it also does is it drives away our fear. 
And that's because once you know that the law is meant for your good and not for your evil, that it's meant for your joy, well, then this Lord of might with the booming voice becomes much more approachable, does he not? Look, look once again at Exodus 20. Look at, it, look at the last verse we read, verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Do not fear, and yet at the same time have the fear of God. Now, now at first glance, these two sayings seem to contradict one another, do they not? But I assure you, that's not the case. And that's because God's purpose in bringing his law to you is his love. It was out of his kindness that Jesus gave to you his commandments. For it is only through the law that you can understand your helpless condition and your true need for a Savior. It is only through the law that you can comprehend the holiness of your God. It is only through the law that you can recognize the, the love that God has for you. A love that produces joy. A love that takes away all fear. And thus you can approach this wisdom from on high, knowing that his delight is in you. Listen, these, these people, they... They were right to fear that holy God. But Moses was also right that they should not be afraid. For this Lord of might has established his law in order to keep sin at bay. In order to keep death at bay. It was because Jesus loved his people that, that he came to them in this veiled glory in a cloud and in fire, showing both his strength and his mercy. And this God who had liberated them from their slavery in Egypt would one day come again to rescue them from their true oppressor. He would come to them in order to release them from, from their bondage to sin, death, and the devil. This is the wisdom of your Lord of might. Coming in the form of a babe. Taking upon humanity. God cloaked himself once again. This time in a different veil. No longer was there a need for ash and smoke. For lightning and thunder. For Yahweh had put on flesh. It is in the form of an infant that we may look upon our God without death overtaking us. In other words, Jesus had come to destroy sin without destroying us. Consider these words from the book of Hebrews. Look at, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. 
Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The law of God is terrifying to behold, and yet it leads to that other mountain, to Mount Zion. And it was at the cross that Moses' words finally made sense. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Dear friends, it was at Calvary that God's justice was enveloped by his love. The, the wisdom of God leads to his holy law in this, and his holy law demands justice. But his holy law is also a law of love. And it is only at the cross of Christ that, that you see these two things joined together. For the cross is an intersection of both love and justice. Brothers and sisters, when you, when you look to the cross, you will see the outstretched arms of this Lord of might coming to save you. When you gaze at the death of your Lord, you will finally understand this, this wisdom from on high where God's justice and his love merge together. Your sin needed to be dealt with. A punishment had to be paid. And only Jesus could pay that penalty and bring you the joy that comes when you are finally freed from your sins and in a restored relationship with your Father who is in heaven. So rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this Advent season, we, we ask that you would remind us of both your wisdom and your might. May our eyes ever be looking for your Son, our Emmanuel. Only in him does your perfect justice and your consuming love come together. Only Jesus is able to bring us the freedom that we need, the freedom from our sins. And so we ask that you would fill us now with your Holy Spirit as you prepare our hearts these upcoming weeks. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.